This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Synthetic biology, engineering life, is set to revolutionise the world, but how? Synthetic biology is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very much grassroots based. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants in synthetic biology and they are pushing it. We'll be hearing about some of the most exciting applications for synthetic biology and how it's being commercialised. Plus, our gene of the month has got itself all in a twist. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for December 2015 with me, Dr. Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Back in October, we visited the world of synthetic biology, using genetic engineering techniques to cut and paste DNA together to create exciting new biological components that can do all kinds of things. Now we're returning to that theme with a look at some of the potential applications being developed using synthetic biology approaches. Paul Fremont is co-director and co-founder of the Imperial College Synthetic Biology Hub in London, and he told me about some of the exciting approaches he and his team are exploring. We have all this huge uh, antimicrobial resistance problem and we have a lot of uh, need to have very good possibly point-of-care diagnostics that could, you know, could, could sort of you know, detect uh, infections, bacterial infections or whatever uh, quickly uh, and, and cheaply uh, and reliably. So one of the great projects I think that uh, my lab's working on is to develop a whole series of in vitro biosensors and what I mean by that is that you could use a living cell as a biosensor, but because of the application space, people feel slightly uncomfortable with having an E. coli as a biosensor. Yeah, bacteria sensing yeah. bacteria seems which, weird. And, it, and, and the, you know, which one's the good one and which one's the bad one and all that sort of stuff. So, so, the, so we, we early on decided, well, okay, that fully understand why people might feel uncomfortable with that. Um, so let's think about, can we use the, the, the cell extract which would have all the machinery to be able to run our genetic programs that we've been designing. So essentially what we use is these cell-free extracts, so they're non-living, they don't have any DNA in them, and then we put into that extract our designed DNA, which would then uh, make some proteins, which would then detect various signals, or analytes, or small molecules, or whatever you want to call them, chemical molecules, which would indicate the presence of a pathogenic bacteria, and when that molecule bound that little uh, chemical entity, it would then uh, activate the production of some color or some fluorescent protein or something else. But it's all genetically encoded, if you see what I mean. So it's kind of almost the same idea as like, you know, a pregnancy test stick or something like that, where you pee on it, it changes color. Exactly. But this is a, a biological system exactly. that's changing color. Perfect, perfect example, perfect analogy. And I think, you know, what's um, exciting about this uh, type of approach is that there's been some recent work from colleagues in the United States to indicate that these cell-free extracts can actually be freeze-dried onto filter paper, potentially. And we've also been working on other kinds of materials that we can sort of freeze-dry these extracts. So, the, so it's actually quite a complicated extract, and it's got a complicated piece of DNA in it, but actually it could end up being an incredibly simple device. So like, you could just pee on it? That, yes, theoretically. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of exciting because it would be very cheap, easy to, to use. Uh, and it would be quite safe. Well, it wouldn't be quite safe, it would be very safe. So that's using this kind of technology to detect uh, bacteria 
bacteria, pathogens in the environment. Are there other things that you could detect? There are. And I think, you know, there are people are very interested in detecting sort of uh, potential diagnostic biomarkers, you know, that, that, that could indicate if someone's unwell or if they've got a if they've got a, a, a continual condition like diabetes or whatever, um, or if they might be, you know, might have had a heart attack, there'll be some people who are very interested to uh, have early sign, early detection systems or whatever. You can imagine the kind of uh, scenario. So w there are a whole bunch of other people and ourselves working on biosensors that would detect protein biomarkers. So maybe we'll end up with sensing, you know, protein markers and protein markers in the urine or in the blood, which could indicate some either cancer or some, you know, particular early stage uh, dysfunctional, you know, physiological dysfunction. So that, those are very exciting. And then the other ones I think which are also very exciting is developing um, sensors that could be used in, in more global healthcare uh, scenarios. So one other sensor we're working on in my lab is uh, to detect the schistosomiasis um, parasite. Uh, and this is a very debilitating disease. It's a waterborne disease. It affects 200 million people in the world. And um, it's, a, it's a tiny little parasite that actually uses humans as part of its life cycle. So it's a really interesting bit of biology. But um, it would be really good if we could have a very local, very cheap, simple diagnostic sensor to test water uh, samples. Not necessarily to prevent people from going into water, but just also to understand the disease, to understand just the, you know, the epidemiology of the disease, and just also just to um, have a tool that, that local uh, um, you know, water management people could use in, in that kind of area. So we're working on that as well. How about another thing that's, that's really exciting? Yeah. Tell me about something else that's really, uh, really cool right now. The other really uh, amazing project which, um, which we're involved in is called the uh, Synthetic Yeast Project. Uh, and this is a really, really exciting project because what the project is about is to essentially synthesise chemically all of the chromosomes of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Now, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is better known as baker's yeast, uh, and you use it to make bread and, and make beer or whatever you, whatever, whatever you use it for. Um, and it's, it's a very well-known, very well-studied organism, and we've been studying it for hundreds of years, thousands of years we've been using it. So the idea is that can we replace the natural chromosomes in that cell, and it's a eukaryotic cell, i.e. it's not a bacteria, it's a much more complex cell, um, and can we, can we then replace it with synthetic, sort of semi-designed uh, DNA? So can you engineer a yeast to be exactly, exactly what you want it to be? Well, yes, and also, and the great thing about this project, and it's a world consortium, it's led um, out of the US by a guy called Jeff Boker, uh, who's in New York, and Jeff set this consortium up, so there are people in China, people in Australia, people in Singapore, and in the UK, Imperial College working on different chromosomes, because there are 16 chromosomes. It's a massive project. Um, and we're working on chromosome 11. And this is work led by my colleague Tom Ellis in our center, who's a fantastic uh, synthetic biologist. And so Tom's been leading on the synthesis of this, and I've been involved in the project as well. Uh, and the idea is that uh, not only can you get a, a yeast cell, which has been essentially um, you know, controlled by design synthetic chromosomes, that's, the, that's what we're aiming for, um, but also we've, we've built into the designs bits in the DNA sequence that allow you to essentially scramble it. So this is the really cool bit. So we can induce uh, production of a protein in this synthetic yeast cell, which would essentially start recombining different parts of this synthetic chromosomes. So we could end up scrambling the whole genome and then, and then plating the yeast out and looking for different 
sort of phenotypes. You know, like a yeast that produces much more alcohol might be interesting. Uh, <laughs> or a yeast or nicer that, bread. Or nicer bread, <laughs> or a yeast that grows at higher temperature. And from an industrial biotechnology point of view, it's a terribly important project because yeast is a very good uh, cell for manufacturing um, chemicals or pharmaceuticals or drugs or whatever. And so if we can, you know, if we can build these kind of interesting yeast um, strains that have particular, you know, properties that are very useful for manufacturing or very useful for whatever, uh, that could open up a whole plethora of different applications. So, and finally, we will also learn a lot about biology because by scrambling all these genomes up, we're going to learn all sorts of weird stuff about, you know, why is the cell growing at 42 degrees, for example? It shouldn't be. It should be dead. The wild-type strain doesn't, you know, so what have we done to create those properties? It's going to be very interesting. Does it feel a little bit strange to effectively be... Uh evolving yeast or I, I suppose to use a, a terrible phrase to be well, playing God to yeast well <laughs> I don't consider it playing God I mean I consider it to be more engineering uh, as you as you probably realize we, we're very focused on this sort of engineering approach to synthetic biology um, and yes we're exploring you know accelerated evolution and I think that's right you are right in saying that um, I mean, you know, you can, you can select naturally different strains, but it takes a long time, it did a lot of different, you know, and it doesn't always work. This is an acceleration of that process, but it's also something we've never been able to do before, which is explore the boundaries of, you know, chromosome organisation, you know, how genes are regulated, turned on and not, you know, and just by scrambling everything and then looking to see what's happened and what it produces is a really interesting experiment, just in its own right. Paul Fremont from Imperial College London's Synthetic Biology Hub. We're heading into the flu season and people at risk such as pregnant women, the elderly and those with certain health conditions are being advised to get a flu jab to help them stay free of the virus this winter. But could doctors soon be adding genetic risk into the mix when deciding who might benefit most from a jab? Paul Kellum from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute outside Cambridge has been investigating whether screening for variations in a gene called IFIT-M3 could form the basis of just such a test a particular gene, and it's known as interferon-inducible transmembrane 3, or IFIT-M3 for short, has a variant in it, and that variant is associated with more severe influenza disease um, than if you don't have that gene variant. And is that a straight sort of one-to-one relationship? If you've got that gene variation, you are going to end up in the hospital when you catch flu. So genetics really doesn't sort of work like that. There, there are modifiers. What you look is, is, a, is at an increased um, risk, so an increased relative risk of de- uh, developing disease given your genetics. And this gives you a four or so fold increased risk of developing disease. So these aren't absolutes. These are, these are modifiers. Not everybody that ends up with severe um, disease, whether it's influenza or other viruses, will have this variant. So it's not um, a a variant that is universally everywhere causing everything that we see, but nonetheless in a subset of people this has a very clear association. It certainly seems to be important as you say, but what's it actually doing? Genes are the instructions that make proteins in cells, so what's going on at the cellular level? So the gene variant Unfortunately, we do not know its mechanism of action, and that's true of a lot of human genetics. But we do know what this protein does, and therefore, by implication, we can start to infer what the gene variant does. So the protein is expressed in the cell. Um, It 
decorates what are known as endosomes, and these are internal vesicles that um, viruses use to get from the outside of the cell to the inside. So the virus gets taken up at the cell surface, ends up in an endosome. The endosomes lower their pH as they get deeper and deeper into the cell, and that low pH causes the virus to trigger and to break out. So they're becoming more acidic? They're becoming more acidic, that's right. The endosomes acidify as they go deeper into the cell. What this protein seems to do is make it much more difficult for the virus to break through the endosome membrane. Whether it makes it more sticky, less fluid, is not really clear, but they seem to create an extra hurdle, an extra barrier for the virus to get out of the endosome. And this is enough to really, really change the disease course. We've talked about flu and about swine flu. Is that the only kind of virus that this protein is working against? Well, no, and that, that's one of the interesting things about this, this gene and this class of genes. Because they are blocking common features of what viruses need to get into cells or use to get into cells, then they have a broader activity spectrum. So this particular gene um, will work against viruses such as dengue virus, other influenza viruses, yellow fever virus, Ebola virus, um, to name but a few. So we're starting starting to look at broad-spectrum antiviral molecules. A lot of drugs that we have target molecules in the cell or molecules in pathogens and, and stop them from working. They block them. I'm thinking of some of the cancer drugs that block the molecules that tell cells to grow. But what you're trying to do here is boost the level of this protein. How can you do that then? Because that's kind of hard. It is kind of hard. Fortunately, biology helps us in this way. Proteins turn over in cells. Some, some proteins turn over very quickly, some turn over very slowly and have much longer half-lives. So that's kind of creating it, destroying it, creating it, destroying it. That's right. Some recent work that um, has come from a, a group in the US has identified the, the mechanism for turning over this protein, IFIT-M3. And what they found is that there's a particular pathway in the cell that helps to destroy IFIT-M3. Now we know the proteins that interact together, then the theory is if you block that interaction specifically, you'll leave more IFIT-M3 on the endosomes and that will increase your antiviral effect. And that sounds potentially like, wow, this is a, an antiviral drug that could work for lots of people against all kinds of viruses. So when are we going to get it? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always a difficult question that um, this is very much at the early stages. This is understanding the basic biology and the mechanism. And then you've got to start on that long and hard road of, of drug development. In the end, you've got to be able to find a molecule that really works, um, a small drug, and that that drug has a good therapeutic effect. That means the benefit official side is much, much, much bigger than the detrimental side of any toxicity associated with the drug. And as yet, we don't have any evidence that um, you can do that very easily in these sort of systems. Turning more to the genetics angle, are there any ways that we could use this genetic information that people with certain gene variants respond in different ways to the flu? Could that be useful as well? Well, I think that's a very interesting way of thinking how you can get quick wins from this sort of information. Um, one of the things that people can relate to very easily is how infectious diseases feel. People have um, gastroenteritis, they have respiratory tract infections. As you say, you, you've had flu, you know what it feels like. Therefore, if it's possible to understand the genetics that changes how you respond to a pathogen and, put, and, and identify people that are at higher risk of severe disease, then you have a way of stratifying them, if you like, for for treatment. Now, for something like influenza, that treatment is very straightforward. It's 
identify those individuals and encourage them to have a vaccination because the vaccine tends to protect against the strain of flu that's coming. So that's a, a very easy way of thinking how genetics can go through actionable information that people can really relate to. The other way of thinking about it is in severe influenza seasons when people are coming into accident and emergency uh, wards and the clinicians are faced with who is going to um, have flu but get better as opposed to those that are going to have flu and get worse and really need me to worry about them as a clinician. At that point, stratifying based on genetics starts to give you that extra information that hopefully becomes clinically useful. That was Paul Kellum from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Still to come, our gene of the month has got itself in a twist. But first, it's time to return to our theme of synthetic biology. Stephen Chambers is CEO of Synby City, a national centre set up to turn bright ideas in synthetic biology into real-life commercial applications by partnering researchers with companies. I started by asking him what kind of organisations he works with. It's the complete range of companies that we talk to. It's everything from uh, multinational companies uh, right the way down to startups um, and a lot of researchers in the lab that are thinking about commercialising. So they haven't even set up a company, they're just thinking about uh, setting up a company. In many areas of biology, perhaps the most obvious way of commercialising something might be to develop a drug, say for a, a disease or cancer or something like that. In terms of synthetic biology, what are the kind of applications that people are, are starting to look at? Where are these, these engineered organisms potentially being used? The obvious ones are always like the biomedical area, and they are there. But the exciting thing about synthetic biology is it's much broader than that. That's the exciting thing about synthetic biology. So it's not just the biomedical technologies. It's also agri-tech. It's chemical industry. It's uh, remediation. It's manufacturing, it's every kind of production you can think of. So it's much, much broader than just, uh, you know, the space that biotech would inhabit in the past. And has it been a challenge trying to get the scientists working in this field to go, oh, actually, I have potential commercial applications for my research? Sometimes scientists do think, oh, no, this is this is research. This isn't industry. Yes, it, it, it is a challenge to, um, and, but that's one of the roles that we have here to educate the scientists, to give them you know, confidence that they can start up their own uh, business and that it is possible. Um, and we have a large number of uh, mentors to help them through that process. We have educational programs, we have funding programs as well. So it's all geared to enabling those researchers uh, with the confidence to step outside the lab and uh, commercialise their ideas. What sort of different areas of commercialisation are there for synthetic biology technologies? The way I think about it and the way that people typically break it down is that there's two areas. They call it enabling and enabled. So uh, the enabling is a large number of uh, tools and reagents, things that... Um, you know, it's almost like foundational technology behind synthetic biology. The kind of the, the Lego bricks that people can take and build Exactly, almost the picks and shovels. So there's that element to it. And that's what we call enabling. Uh, and then there's the enabled, and that's the end product. So that's the interesting thing. That's the, um, you know, that's the fine chemical that's being made. That's the drug that's being made. That's the, um, 
you know, I have a large number of companies that come through me, and it's amazing the types of uh, different things that they're making. Uh, you know, everything from kind of super cosmetics uh, right the way through to medical devices, apps. So it's really, really broad. It's very hard to define. But that's, you know, that's one of the challenges, but also what makes it so exciting. What sort of products and processes are people starting to use this technology in? Well, just, you know, I just talk about my, my own ecosystem that uh, the companies that uh, I'm interacting with. I have companies that are making hard-to-make chemicals. I think you'd probably describe them as that. Um, they're making uh, new drugs. I've got one company that is launching a product in a couple of months, uh, which is a cosmetic. And then uh, I have another company that is uh, launching some uh, reagents and tools in synthetic biology. So again, it's very broad and uh, a lot of different applications. Do you think that there's kind of a, a killer app? There's something out there that synthetic biology can solve for us that, that nothing else has been able to solve yet? You know, we're always, obviously, as a technology, we're always looking for that killer app that's uh, going to get the public's attention. But um, I don't think I've seen one yet. Um, there's some very exciting tools out there, but um, I don't think we've seen the killer app yet. How do you see this technology expanding, changing, developing over, say, the next five to ten years? Where would you hope that we would end up? I think one of the big pushes for synthetic biology is going to be around sustainability, where synthetic biology has its roots in. And it, it is, synthetic biology is, is, a, is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Like it's, it's very much kind of grassroots-based. Um, it's not a, a top-down thing. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants in synthetic biology, and they are pushing it. And they have, um, you know, a very um, utopian idea about synthetic biology, and they are really pushing the green side of things. And um, I think where we're going to see a lot of um, movement in synthetic biology that's going to be um, attractive to the public is around the bioremediation, uh, around environmental kind of concerns. Can synthetic biology save the world? Definitely. Stephen Chambers from Synby City. One person who's working hard on a new biomedical application for synthetic biology is Imperial College's Jeff Baldwin. He's working on new ways to target cancer drugs specifically to tumours, leaving healthy cells unharmed with the help of some specially constructed nano cages. Normally when you take a drug, whether it's a tablet or it's injected, that drug disperses across your entire body uh, and that's why you have toxic effects from drugs where they are acting elsewhere than other than the site you want them to act. So the general proposition is can we make drug action more specific by targeting that drug to the site where we want it to go in the body. So for example if you have a, a cancer to make it go to that cancer and not anywhere else? Exactly so. So a lot of the problems associated with anti-cancer drugs uh, is that they're very toxic. So they're, they're very good at killing cancer cells, but the problem is they're also quite good at killing other cells in your body too. And that's why a lot of uh, chemotherapy treatments for cancer have pretty nasty side effects. So our idea is to shield these drugs by encapsulating them in a nanostructure so that these drugs, once they're administered into your body, don't have the same toxic side effects. So it's almost like smuggling them in to get them to just the right place. Indeed, yeah. It's sort of a, sort of a Trojan horse type affair where the nanocage 
targets them to the cell and we can direct those uh, those nanocages to specific cells uh, and then once they're at that site then what we want them to do is to release that toxic cargo at the site where you want the treatment. Surprise, it's a drug. Yeah, indeed. So how are you using the, the tools of synthetic biology to do this? How do you make these, these nano cages and, and trap the drug inside them? What the approaches of synthetic biology have given us is a sort of a modular approach to biology. And by treating these nano cages as uh, modular, reformable uh, structures where we can take them apart uh, and then kind of rationally put them back together. Effectively like biological bricks? Yeah, because we've developed quite a lot of foundational tools in synthetic biology uh, around assembling DNA, uh, we can actually use that to kind of recapitulate different modifications and different formulations of these nanocages very quickly. And that has made us uh, able to uh, refactor and refathom these nanocages and, and, and sample lots of different variations of them to pick out the ones that work best for our purposes and we can do that kind of much more quickly and much more efficiently than we could previously. And how do you make them? Is it the kind of approach where they're being made in bacteria or yeast? How do you actually manufacture these little cages? Yeah, we just express them in, in bacteria and so, so our nanocages are made of protein so they're a natural proteinaceous material. Uh, in fact, we have, you know, we, we've, we take these nanocages from a variety of sources. Some of them are naturally human proteins, uh, but we can express them and purify them as individual proteins and then reform the nanocages from these purified proteins. And how do they know where to go when they get into the body? How do they know to go to a particular tumour or, or to the site of a disease? There are two ways that nanocages can be effective in terms of targeting. Uh, one of the, the ways that a number of people are exploiting in treatment of cancer cells with nanostructures is just that a lot of cancers have quite leaky vasculature. That's the blood vessels that the blood feed vessels, them. Yeah. So these small uh, nanostructures are able to, they actually leak, naturally leak out of the blood vessels at the site of tumours and they will have naturally an increased residence time at the sites of, of many cancers within the body. That's not true of all cancers, but it's, it's certainly true of, of some solid tumours. The other way we're looking at is to combine these with antibodies and then use the, the specificity of antibodies against specific cell markers that are known to be associated with cancer cells uh, and so that we can you know, have more active targeting in that way. And so, so this is something which is currently being explored as to what are the best routes for targeting of, of these species. Where in the process are these nanocages? You know, it's always the how long is a piece of string kind of question, but how far through the, the process from bright idea in the lab to here's a treatment that patients could receive? We are a long way from having this as a treatment because, you know, any drug that you're going to minister into the body has a lot of regulatory hurdles. Uh, we're currently looking at developing this as, as an in vitro drug testing platform, uh, so to use these for delivering uh, drugs in cells in the lab. The, the other area of interest we're looking at is, is whether we can use these within the gastrointestinal tract. So there's a lot of difficult to treat tumours that are associated with uh, the digestive tract uh, and pancreatic cancers, liver cancers, esophageal cancer that are currently very difficult to diagnose and catch early and treat effectively. 
Uh, and so the idea of having a nanocage which is very visible, uh, we can make these things highly fluorescent, uh, and then you have the potential uh, for endoscopic delivery rather than delivery through the bloodstream. So you literally put a tube into the, the organ or the tumour and just like, pop, in, in you go. Yes, so you'll be able to kind of like spray the surfaces uh, the way, where you're trying to investigate for cancers uh, within the patient. If they light up, uh, and, and, and stay lit up then you will know that the cancer is there uh, and then what we are also hoping is is that you know you can then perhaps combine that with uh, directed therapy where once you see the tumor is lit up switch phases to blast uh, and then lead to, to drug dissolution where you want them. Jeff Baldwin from Imperial College London and finally it's time for our gene of the month and this time it's curly First described almost a century ago and a firm favourite with fruit fly geneticists everywhere, the curly mutation gives flies characteristic upturned curved wings rather than their normal straight ones. Because these are easy to spot, it's often used as a marker when doing breeding experiments so researchers can easily find the flies they're interested in. But for nearly a hundred years, researchers haven't known exactly which gene is responsible. Recently, a team of scientists in New York pinned it down to a gene called Duox, which makes an enzyme that creates very reactive chemicals inside cells, helping to stabilise the structure of the developing wing. Pleasingly, Curly works together with another gene known as Curly Sue, which helps to tie together protein molecules in the developing wing to give them a strong, straight structure. If either gene is missing, the wings don't form properly, creating the curly shape. In humans, duox is found in the thyroid gland and the gut, although exactly what it's doing there is unclear. And it's also found widely across other species, suggesting that whatever it does do is pretty important for it to be preserved so widely through evolution. That's all for now. Next month I'll be bringing you the very best of the Naked Genetics podcast over the past four years. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next time for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>